right. Well, if, uh, if Evan was tired um, because he woke up, there's, there's probably others of you that are tired as well. So I'm a good person to be here today because I have like one level and it's, um, it's high intensity uh, uh, passion. So, um, and the other reason I'm really uh, pretty amped up is because last night my son and I went to um, the monster truck rally. Y'all like, that's what I'm, I mean, I'm new to central Oregon like as of three years. And I've been to the Monster Truck Rally every single year, and I don't think I'll miss a year. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is how, I mean, it's something to behold if you've never been to this before. Uh, trucks that big, crushing cars. It's just amazing, right? Um, my son, Anders, he's, he's five. He's so excited about this that we're leaving the, the garage, and we're, we're getting ready to go, and uh, we're backing out. And he goes, Dad, you think we should pray? And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, dear God, thank you that we get to go to the monster truck rally and just help us to have a fun time. And it was, I mean, it's awesome, you guys. <laughs> it's so awesome. Um, before we jump in, uh, we're going to have a conversation about a, a, a journey from apathy to compassion this morning. And, uh, and I just want to start by saying as a human being and as a room filled with human beings, we are all on that journey from apathy to compassion? Um, how do we go from a space where, um, where we, we've convinced ourselves that what doesn't directly impact us doesn't deserve our attention to when we see the pain and the brokenness in ourselves, in others, and in the world around us, we actually show up in creative and costly ways. Um, this, this journey from apathy to compassion, um, I would also place it as the journey from admiring Jesus to following Jesus. Did you catch that? the journey from admiring Jesus to following Jesus. And, um, and so again, I think that's a journey that we're all on. There's an admiration that we have uh, for Jesus, but to follow him means we no longer can remain apathetic to the pain and the plight in the world around us, right? Um, there's a movement toward compassion. And here's the thing about compassion. We can't like cerebrally move ourselves into compassionate people. It's not something that we learn about and then it grows in us. The only way that compassion grows in us is when we're on a journey of following Jesus. And then here's the real kicker. Compassion isn't the end of the journey. Compassion becomes the precursor to responsibility. Compassion is the fuel to merciful action, right? So I'm a human being on the journey from apathy to compassion and through compassion, I think, to merciful action for the sake of a restored world. Um, that, that plays out in my home, that plays out in my neighborhood, it plays out in this beautiful city, it plays out in our, in our state, country, and world. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that uh, this morning as a part of this, this really cool series that we're doing. But before I do that, because I have the mic and you're in transition, let me just say three things. Number one, transition creates such a potent opportunity for, for you, Antioch, to remember whose you are, who you are, and what's yours to do. Such a potent opportunity. And I understand that transition is a time of dissonance and disequilibrium. Yep, that's a good thing. That's a real thing. So don't try to, you know, establish equilibrium really quickly. Press into the disequilibrium because this is a refining, clarifying moment. And, and I'm, as, as a faith leader in the city of Bend, desperate for Antioch to continue to remember whose you are, who you are, and what's yours to do here in this city. It's a great opportunity. Number two, every single one of you has resources and tools and skills in your hands. You have passions and desires in your hearts and your heads. Now is the time to contribute them, to invest them into who it is that Antioch is becoming. Don't sit by and wait to see what's going to happen. You are what's going to happen. 
So put what's in already in your hands, hearts, and heads into the game so that Antioch becomes who Antioch needs to be. I am convinced that God has everything that God needs sitting in this room for Antioch to become who Antioch needs to become for the sake of this city and beyond. Because it's happening in Bend, y'all. So we get to play or not. So let's play. Um, Third thing is this. This has always been a community oriented around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Leadership shifts and changes, and I'm stoked about that. And this is, and Pete would say, this is unapologetically a movement about Jesus. Uh, And so as you move through this transition, double down on the centrality of Jesus. Be rooted in Jesus. Be woven together in Jesus. And then extend yourselves because of Jesus into this place. Because this city, while beautiful, is also broken. Uh, and needs to see the presence of Jesus embodied in really profound uh, and sometimes mundane ways. Uh, so I'm cheering you on the extent to which I get to play with you and um, encourage you for it. I, I'm honored to do it, you know. So um, onward, Antioch. I'm, I'm totally stoked for you. Um, the story that you just heard, and I was going to say something, Pete, before you did, uh, that needs to be a podcast reader uh, of, my, of my every day. So uh, let's work on that, um, tech people. Let's get her um, reading the Bible for all of us. Uh, seriously, so good. Um, it's a phenomenal story, right? Like, it, it's, can you imagine telling a story that literally stands the test of time, that like people millennia later are reflecting on the time you told a story and we're like learning from it, we're gleaning from it, we're figuring out how to follow Jesus more closely because of it. It's an unbelievable story and no doubt it's one that the majority of us in the room are, are really familiar with. Uh, you know, the, this, the story of the Good Samaritan. What I've found in my work around the country and the world is that everybody, regardless of their faith tradition, is really familiar with this story. It's a story that plays across every single boundary. Why? Because it's a story that, that really puts into life and into action this common teaching of neighbor love. How do we love our neighbor? That's something we can all agree on, right? Um, this particular story, though, it's not just about neighbor love. It's a story about crime and injustice and hatred and racism and mercy. It, it's a story that, um, that speaks to unjust and broken systems and faulty Um, power-accumulating brokers who remain indifferent to the plight of people who are in pain. Um, It's a story that reveals the apathy of the religious, the compassion of the marginalized, and a journey that we have to take together. Um, and so I, I want to get playful with, um, with this text a, a little bit. And, um, and oftentimes when people teach on this, they say, now as I go, I want you to really figure out, like, wh- who am I in this story? Um, if that's helpful for you, great, with one caveat. Um, if I can disallow you from understanding yourself as, um, as the, the voiceless victim, um, and I, if I could disallow you from identifying as the Samaritan, just for this morning. I would like to invite you to consider yourselves as someone else, okay, as I get playful with, uh, with the text, and we'll see how that goes. Ready? Okay. Um, the, story, uh, the story begins with, um, with a dominant culture thought leader. A dominant culture thought leader. And this person, this person believes that intellectualism and morality are the tickets into eternity with God. If I, if I get smarter and think the right thoughts, and if I follow the rules to a T, then I get to spend forever with God and my friends. 
right? And so, uh, so th- this person, this dominant culture thought leader comes up to Jesus and wants to engage in a conversation um, about that. Jesus is thrilled to engage in that conversation. But then because this person is so fixated on following the rules, it gets to a conversation about neighbor love. And, and the, the, the dominant culture thought leader says, well, well who is my neighbor? Uh, the, the translation of that question is, who am I obligated to see and who do I get to ignore? Who am I obligated to see and who do I get to ignore? You see, if I understand who my neighbor is and who my neighbor isn't, then I can eliminate any of my concern for any of the people who are not neighbor so I can exclusively focus on the people who are neighbor. I can love them well and then go and be in eternity with God and and my friends who are also doing that. All right, interesting. So um, in response to that uh, question, Jesus tells this story. And, um, and in the story, this colorful group of characters emerges, right? And so what we find in the very beginning of the story is that there's this, um, a, a person who eventually becomes a voiceless victim. And this particular person, for whatever reason, his livelihood is connected to walking on a broken road in occupied territory in the most dangerous part of the day. Now, we don't know anything about where this character is a fictional character. It might be based on true events, but it's a fictional character that Jesus is talking. Maybe he's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. Maybe there's like, this journey is not the sole focus of this person's life. There's a thing probably going on in this person's life like is true for all of us. There's maybe family, there's vocation. Maybe something is, there's an emergency. There's an urgency that's driving him to take this particular journey. It's a 17 mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a dangerous road then, it's a dangerous road today. So for whatever reason, the livelihood or the urgency or something about this moment in time for this person meant that he had to take a a, a soul pilgrimage in isolation, in occupied territory, on a dangerous road in the most dangerous part of the day. So he makes his way. And then there's this other group of characters that emerges, right? It's this group of bandits who hides in the shadows along this dangerous road. And this group of people, they've created a sense of community around survival at the cost of others. They've created community around survival at the cost of others. They prey upon the isolated pilgrim that makes his or her way on this dangerous road. And what we discover is that this group of bandits, they don't see the humanity, the dignity, and the image of God in this, in this person. They see an exploitable object. They see someone that they can consume and take from. Now, let's pause the story right here because we like to skip over the bandit so that we can get to the religious people and the Good Samaritan. I want to argue that, um, that while none of us, I imagine, would say, yep, that's me, I think that we all can resonate with the bandits more than, more than we think. You see, every one of us is connected to, contributes to, and benefits from systems that push people to the edges and the margins of society such that they have to dwell in the shadows and develop community around survival at the cost of others. I contribute to and benefit from systems that on a daily basis is kicking people to the edges of society, causing them to have to dwell in in the shadows 
and see people not as, um, as human beings to be in relationship with, but people that I have to exploit, not because it's fun, but because it's the only way I can survive. So while I might not identify with the bandit, I, I'm connected, I'm indicted, I'm complicit in systems, right? And, um, and it's likely that, that you are too. And, and so like this colorful group of people, they don't see the humanity, dignity, and image of God in this person. They see an object that can be exploited. And, and then, um, you know, and then we have the religious come up. And, um, and the religious in this case are people who have a very distinct role in the life of the community. Uh, their job is to make their way to Jerusalem and to, you know, to, to advocate to God, to cry out to God for mercy on behalf of the people of Israel. And the only way they can do their job effectively is if they remain ceremonially pure. So faithfulness for the, relig- the religious leaders in this case requires that they remain apathetic to the plight of people in their way. They have to because if they draw near those people, it could compromise their cleanness. And if their cleanness is compromised, why then they're no longer going to be able to serve in the function of crying out to God for mercy on behalf of the people. So their understanding of faithfulness causes them to notice the voiceless victim but not to see him. Their sense of faithfulness actually dupes them into moving around the pain and the plight that's in front of them rather than into it. Isn't that an an interesting understanding of faithfulness? That if I get too close to this, if I get blood on my shoes, if I'm seen doing this, if I'm observed doing this, it could actually compromise my standing within the community. Like if I get blood on my shoes, somehow that could disqualify me from the movement. Now that's in some ways a real reality then, but it's definitely a real reality for us right now. How many times do I have um, my internal conversations with myself around, should I go there? Like if Jesus is prompting me in this direction, if I go there and I'm observed being there, what will people think about me? That could cost me my reputation. That could disqualify me from, from my role as a faith leader or, or, or whatever, or a peacemaker or whatever it is. Like, I can't get too close to that because people are watching and people might actually disqualify me from their movement if I get too close to the pain, if I get too close to the injustice, if I get too close to people who are not like me. Right, this is real. Like, I'm a human being and so are you. Like, this, this is real stuff that we think about, right? Um, Statistically speaking, U.S. American dominant culture Christians are the most insulated people on the planet. I wonder if that has anything to do with our priority of safety and our longing not to be disqualified because we get too close to people who are not like us. They might contaminate us. We might get disqualified from the movement, right? So you have the, the, faith, the faith leaders, they notice the voiceless victim, but they see him as a, a compromising inconvenience. If I get too close, there are major implications for me here. All right? Then we, um, we, get to, we get to the Samaritan. Now, in, in this context, when Jesus gives entrance of the Samaritan into the story, the people who were listening in braced themselves. Like if they had kids with them, this is the moment they like do the earmuff thing. Right? Because the understanding is that Samaritans are dangerous people. 
generally speaking, as a people group, they are a dangerous people. They are subhuman half-breeds with a tainted religion. Subhuman half-breeds with a tainted religion. So when Jesus says, but then a Samaritan, everybody's like, oh man, the voiceless victim who's still unconscious and bloody, like the Samaritan's going to be the one who's going to pick up a rock and finish the job. That's what Samaritans do, right? You know, and so um, Jesus gives entrance to this person. And, and I was noting, even as I was preparing to talk about this today, th- this, these categories of subhuman half-breed with a tainted religion. I'm comfortable you, like, speaking those terms when I'm reflecting on a biblical character, but the bottom line is I use those categories maybe on a daily basis, whether consciously or subconsciously, as I interact with the world around me. My upbringing, media, mentors, significant influences in my life have trained me to see and to not see the world in a particular way, has trained me to see and to not see particular people groups in a particular way, has caused me to generalize entire people groups as subhuman half-breeds with tainted religions. They're dangerous people. And so I just, again, as as a human being who's in need of the gospel to continue to transform me, as I walk through my everyday, there are people that I actually believe are worth less than me. And I bet you do too, when we're honest. And so like Jesus, like Jesus raises up the contemporary despicable to put on display a better story. And as we see in the story, it's, it's the Samaritan. It's the, it's the one misunderstood as subhuman half-breed with tainted religion that actually puts on display what God is like. It's the Samaritan who doesn't see this person as an object to exploit or a compromising inconvenience. It's the Samaritan who sees the humanity, dignity, and image of God in the voiceless victim. And what the Samaritan saw became the most important thing in the world to him. It stopped him dead in his tracks What he saw created a sense of compassion and then compassion fueled him to immerse into the radical center of that voiceless victim's story and then contend for him by repurposing the resources that he already had in his hands. He just took things that he had and he began to makeshift some kind of quick triage hospital. And then we understand that he commits to funding the person's restoration all the way to the end. So Jesus is telling the story, gets to this point, and, and then he, um, he turns to the dominant culture thought leader and he says, he, he, he says, which of these three is the neighbor? The, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which one most embodied neighbor love? The pastor, the Antioch member, and the marginalized Which one of them is most like God? And the dominant culture thought leader says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, here's where I'm at with this story right now. Um, I'm recognizing that if the marginalized was the one who was most like Jesus, then I'd better spend some time learning from him. I want to learn from the marginalized what it means to follow Jesus. Like, I don't want to spend time just having a conversation about who do I resonate most with. The Samaritan in the story is the only one who took a journey from apathy to compassion and beyond. So I need to learn from the Samaritan how to live like Jesus. 
right? And so for me, and I'm only 15 years into this journey and still feel like a total rookie um, with regard to how to take this journey from apathy to compassion. But this whole thing about learning from the marginalized, remember in Matthew 25, Jesus says, do you want to find me? Do you want to be found and formed by me? Go to the margins. That's where I am. That's where you'll find me. That's where I'll find you. That's where I'll transform you. It's in the margins and among the marginalized that you will begin to live, love, and lead like me. And so um, for me, this whole learning from the marginalized, what it means to live, love, and lead like Jesus has not just been a cerebral experience. It's required risk and relationship and proximity. That for me to figure out how to take a journey from apathy to compassion, it has required that I acknowledge and confess my blindness. That I rebel against my priorities of homogeneity, convenience, and safety. It's required that I draw near the pain, that I encounter the marginalized, that I develop relationships with them so that I can learn from them. Let me tell you some of what I'm learning because it's shaping my life. This is Ben. Uh, ben is right here. Um, ben is a, is a pastor, theologian, activist in the streets of, uh, of Oakland. He is teaching me that Jesus looked nothing like me. Although I'd like to argue he had cool hair. Um, he looked nothing like me, and he looked nothing like the majority context of this room. Jesus was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who lived on the underside of empire who stood diametrically opposed to any and every system that compromised people's lives, that did not reflect the kingdom of God, did not benefit from unjust systems, diametrically opposed to them, called them out. This is my friend Jim Bear Jacobs. Uh, he, he's a, 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 an indigenous pastor in Minneapolis. Last time I was with him, is just a couple weeks ago, um, we were talking about the Bible together, and he held up the Bible, and he said, you know, you know what this is, right? I go, the Bible. And he goes, this is an indigenous manual. This is a manual written by the marginalized for the marginalized. And if you, if you read the text, it's true. It's an oppressed people group trying to sort out the complexity of the God life and how to be faithful, how to be a part of changing the world. Right? And so he said, here's, here's where you've gotten it wrong. And we have the kind of relationship where we can have these types of conversations where he, he says, here's, here's where you've gotten it wrong. People like you, Jer, you take this book to the margins and you say to the marginalized, let me tell you what this says. And he says, you know what you need to be doing? Take this book to the margins, open it up and say, will you help me understand what this says? says, if you did that, you would discover the Jesus that we follow who was a powerfully powerless Jesus who invites us not just to admire, but to follow. This is my friend Dee McIntosh. She's a pastor, theologian in, um, in Minneapolis. Um, she's teaching me that Jesus understood how to lament, which is something that I'm very out of touch with as a dominant culture male faith leader. How to lament. She's, she's teaching me that Jesus knew, knew how to lament because he was proximate to the pain. And that when, when you're proximate to the pain, there's like this engine that, that, that is awoken in you where you, you're devastated that, that things are not yet as they will be. And that lament is not just like we, we sit and, and we're sorry about it. Lament is actually a worship practice. It becomes high-octane fuel for a courageous faithfulness. 
That's what she's teaching me. Milad, this is Milad Vazgarichian. He's a, he's a Palestinian refugee who lives in the West Bank. He's teaching me that Jesus knows what it means to be a Middle Eastern refugee because he was one who was 100% dependent on the benevolence of others. That courageous benevolence, that's a mark, a defining mark of the family of God. This is my friend Alejandra Ortiz. She's a Mexican peacemaker, one of the most dynamic uh, young women leaders that I have ever met. And, uh, and we do work together in the borderlands around immigration. And she reminds me consistently that Jesus lived with borderless hospitality, that Jesus lived a daily liturgy of the shared table with all of the wrong kinds of people. And guess what? It cost him everything, his reputation and ultimately his life. This is my friend, Dominique. Dominique Gillier just wrote a book called Rethinking Incarceration that I think should be in the library of everybody at Antioch. It's unbelievable as it unpacks the current day slavery and what it, what it means, what it looks like. Dom is helping me understand that Jesus understands the criminal justice system and how broken it is because he was the victim of it. He experienced the flesh-tearing impacts of the whips, and ultimately he died as a victim of capital punishment of a militarized empire. You see, when you enter into relationships in the margins, you begin to discover a Jesus that's far more legitimate than the Jesus that I was offered growing up. These friends are teaching me that Jesus didn't wield a cross for the benefit of people who were like him, but Jesus wore a cross on behalf of all of us and then keeps pointing to the cross as God's declaration of love for us. They, they keep pointing me to a Jesus who doesn't invite us to admire him from safe, homogenous religious incubators. They keep pointing me to a Jesus that doesn't invite us to become cognitively stimulated by great talks, great podcasts, and popular books. They're pointing me to a Jesus who doesn't, isn't satisfied with, with us just being emotionally up with our music and things like that. They keep pointing me to a Jesus who invites us into a journey from apathy to compassion where we roll up our sleeves, we lose reputation. It costs us everything, ultimately, our lives for the sake of restoration. But that's the adventure that we've been saved into anyway. That's what we said yes to, right? They're calling me to it. And I have friends here in Bend that I could fill all of these slots with, our friends from the margins, who are calling me and us to the same kind of courageous faithfulness, of an embodied neighbor love that looks like the cross. So how do we take the journey from apathy to compassion? Um, let me offer just a couple ideas. Um, number one, um, we have to acknowledge and confess our blindness. Now, blindness is a, is a funky deal, right? And, and we're uncomfortable with the thought, I'm uncomfortable with the thought of, of me being blind. Um, physically, I'm blind, which is why I wear contacts. I'm happy to do something about my blindness physically, but I'm less happy to do something about my blindness on like a social level or an emotional level or, or things like that, right? So, so I, I actually know and I live, and I bet you do too, with a sense that I don't see everything like it really is. I bet we all have this sense that like my perspective is skewed. Like it's not comprehensive. Like there's a whole bunch of vantage points that I know nothing about. And if you're anything like me, you're uncomfortable with that. And if you're uncomfortable like I am with the fact that my perspective is not perfectly accurate, what you'll probably do like me is dupe myself into believing that my slanted per perspective of reality is 2020 vision. 
it just helps me to like move on. I think there's something better we can do. Here's the bottom line. We all have been trained to see and to not see. Like I said earlier, through bias, through, uh, through media, through mentors, through our upbringing, through all sorts of different external features, we've been trained to see and to not see. And so we have to acknowledge that and then move into a, a season or a, even just a daily practice, a, a liturgy of confessing our blindness. I'm blind. I'm blind. I don't see everything as it is. So here's a couple of ideas for what we can do with our blindness. Um, First and foremost, confess it. Confess it. One of my favorite passages is found in Luke chapter 17, 35 through 43, where Jesus is on his way into Jericho, and there's a blind dude sitting there, and his name's Bartimaeus. Do you remember this story? As Jesus is making his way in, the blind dude, Bartimaeus, just starts going crazy, screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Like, screaming, right? And people are like, Bartimaeus, bro, shut up. Like nobody cares. You've been blind your whole life. Like you, you yell every time someone powerful comes by. Just stop, right? So everyone is silencing him. The disciples are saying, Jesus, let's move on. There's blind dudes everywhere. You know, let's get into Jericho, do our deal. There's a little guy up in a tree we got to tend to, you know, whatever. Um, but Jesus, Jesus stops he hears the blind dude and he goes up to him and he comes up to Bartimaeus and what does, he, what does he do? Does he heal him right away? No. He asks him a question. Because when God draws near us, God always does so with compassion and curiosity. He comes up to Bartimaeus and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Obvious, isn't it? Like, I don't know if you've encountered many blind people, but usually you can tell if they're blind. Jesus comes up to the blind guy. What do you want me to do for you? You know what Bartimaeus says? I want to see. Jesus says, your faith has healed you, heals his sight. And now for the first time, maybe in his life, he sees more accurately. What would it be like for us, Antioch, to be a community of people who declares every day, I want to see, confess, I am blind. My perspective is not 2020 vision. I want to see. Now, here are two ways that I think we can begin the process of healing. Yes, Jesus was a sight healer then and is a sight healer today, but there are all sorts of different tools that can contribute to the healing of our sight. Two of them here. Number one, let's start utilizing technology to learn about the perspectives of others. Uh, The the image that you have up here, um, that's my favorite TED Talk of all time. Her name's Chimamanda Adichie. She's a Nigerian author. And the, na- the name of this TED Talk is the, uh, the Danger of the Single Story, in which she's talking about how all of us are raised in a really like clear-cut understanding of the world. And we actually have to become people who broaden our perspective, heal our sight, see bigger and more broadly. So we can utilize technology to learn about, encourage us to do it. I do it almost on a daily basis and it's healing my sight. Right now, this is funny, but I'm listening to two podcasts. One is called Two Dope Queens and one is called The Guilty Feminists. Um, They're hysterical hysterical, but I'm just simply crawling into the life and the perspective of feminists. I want to understand life from the perspective of feminists. So I'm learning from them or learning about them uh, utilizing technology. Um, Confess our blindness, utilize technology to learn about, but all of those things actually keep us distant. They keep us isolated. They keep us out of contact with other people. So if we actually want to move from blindness into sight, We have to expand our learning from learning about to learning from. 
There are incredible opportunities in Central Oregon. I want to offer two right now. Number one, COCC does a season of nonviolence every year where they bring in indigenous leaders from all over the country for regular lectures. Go. Sit in the back of the room. Listen longer than feels comfortable and allow yourselves to be changed by what you've heard. Number two, there's an alliance that's been building called the Central Oregon Neighbor Love Alliance. It's an ecumenical, interfaith, multi-generational, multi-ethnic community of, of people of faith here in Central Oregon that are moving the needle with regard to neighbor love in this place. We're figuring out what it means to actually live in solidarity primarily with our migrant sisters and brothers. It's an unbelievable movement that's building that Antioch, you should be a part of this. The magic of it is that we are literally sitting on a weekly basis, many of us, and learning from the perspectives of our sisters and brothers here in Central Oregon, which is rural conservative America, what it means to be a migrant in this place. What does solidarity look like? What does justice look like? What does a fully restored Central Oregon look like? And what do we get to do together in order to usher it in? We're learning from one another. I'll come back to that because there's a specific invitation that I want to offer you um, along the way. So confess that we're, we're blind, uh, that we're in need of our, our sight being healed. Jesus is a sight healer. He's going to get after that with us. There are tools that we can leverage, and there are experiences that we can move toward um, to begin to move in that direction. One of um, my friend Ben that I mentioned earlier, he's helping me so much in this whole sight healing thing. Okay? Um, I want to introduce um, two concepts that he's given to me that have been super helpful um, they're, um, they're Zulu terms, Sawabona and Nakona. Um, in, in a Zulu context, if you and I were to meet each other in the street, I would say to you, Sawabona, and you would respond, Nakona. So let me practice. Sawabona. Nakona, that's right. Sawabona is this beautiful term that is defined as we see you. Now, isn't it interesting, like, if you and I walked up to one another in the street and I said Sawabona, I'm using the plural we, I'm only one guy, with multiple personalities probably, but I'm using the we, see you. Here's why they do that. Because in a person-to-person encounter in the Zulu culture, they recognize that when I see you, so do my ancestors and so do the divinities that I'm connected with. We see you in this moment. But Sawabona isn't just, we see that you're physically here. Sawabona is, we see your humanity and your dignity. We see your personality. We see your distinctiveness. We see your potential. Can you imagine what would be different in the world if you and I communicated with our eyes and our words and our lives? Sawabona, we see you. I was just um, in, in Edmonton, Alberta, with... Um, with Jackie, my wife, and our friend Maya. Um, Maya does a lot of work with mental health in the, um, in the country, and uh, she told us this story um, where she was recently able to interview someone who just survived uh, a, 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 an attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, the survival rate is almost non-existent. You don't, you don't survive that. But as she interviewed um, and was interacting with this person who, who survived, she just said, can you, like, tell me the story of that day. Here's what he said. He said, I got on a bus, fully intent to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and take my life. And as I was on the bus, I realized if, I, I made the determination that if one person greets me, I won't jump off the bridge. 
and took that entire bus ride and no one spoke a word to him. He had to transfer onto another bus. And he said, if one person acknowledges me on this bus, I won't take my life. No one looked at him. He got onto the third bus and he said, if anybody even indicates that I'm on this bus, I won't take my life. Nobody acknowledged his presence. So he gets to the Golden Gate Bridge and he begins the walk to the middle. The Golden Gate Bridge kind of goes like this. And he, he's on his way walking to the middle and he's realizing he's walking. This is a, his death march. He's done and he gets, to, um, he gets to the spot where he's about to climb over and someone taps him on the shoulder and he's sobbing at this moment and he's thinking to himself, this is my savior, this is my angel. Finally, somebody sees me. He turns around and a young woman thrusts her phone into his hands and said, will you take a picture of me? And so he took her picture, handed her phone back and jumped off the bridge. Imagine what would be different in the world if we communicated with our eyes, with our lives, with our words, with our leadership, with our influence, Sawabona, we see you. We see you. Now, Nakona is, um, is this beautiful uh, term that, that is defined, um, because I'm seen by you, I am here. That's what that guy was longing for. Will somebody please acknowledge that I'm here? Because even if you look at me, You'll acknowledge that I'm in the room. Friends, followers of Jesus, followers of the sight healer, we should be the best in the world at seeing people. Nakona, because I'm seen by you, I'm here. It's helpful for me. It's, it's a part of my process. It's, it's how I want to show up every day of my life. Friends, we're blind our, our perspective is not 2020 vision, but as we confess our blindness and as we utilize technology to learn about the perspective, as we, as we expand our learning from learning about to learning from, our blindness starts to get healed up. One, uh, one last thought here on how do we take this journey from apathy to compassion. We, we, we have to choose relationship. Everything in that first set of to-dos like confess, learn about, learn from, we're still not necessarily in relationship. But y'all, like, we, we, have, we, have got, we have got to learn how to build relationships, how to embody neighbor love in ways that transcend boundaries, borders, documentation statuses, ethnicities, sexual orientations, creeds, um, economics, you name the divide. We have got to become people compelled by Jesus to develop uncommon friendships. Now, um, there's all sorts of things that keep us from that. I, I think that there's a, there's a fierce commitment that we have to things like homogeneity, things like convenience. Like, it's not convenient to develop a relationship with someone who's not like you. All of those pictures of my friends, I've been working on relationships with them for, some of them for, for 10 plus years, and they still give me the side eye, you know? Like, it's hard work. It's hard work. 
but it is the, in, the most incredibly necessary work in front of us. You see, it's in the context of building relationships with people who are not like us that we begin to discover our own humanity, that we actually start embodying this whole new family thing that Jesus was talking about because of his resurrection. There's a new family that Jesus is building that's made up of all different kinds of bloodlines and, uh, and, and ethnicities and backgrounds and everything. Everything. Jesus is making a new family. Well, how in the world do we get to be a part of making a new family if all we ever do is chill out with people who are just like us? So there's the, the, the choosing relationship thing is, um, is really important, and, and there's fear that's involved in it. Like, I have to rebel against safety to begin to move toward relationships with people who aren't like me. You know what? Like, we're all afraid, every one of us. And everybody on the other side of the divide, they're fr- afraid too. So again, when I confess that I'm afraid, it loses its power. But then when I begin to move, like reach my hand across the divide to grab the hands of the people on the other side, I begin to recognize that love is the only thing that actually dissolves fear. I think that's biblical, right? Love is the only thing that dissolves fear. I can't think my way out of fear. I have to live my way. I have to love my way out of fear, right? But I'm not just talking or inviting us to think about how we become chums with people who aren't like us. I'm inviting us into um, a different reality. Uh, it's another, uh, an, another African concept called Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Uh, to, before I define it, I'll illustrate it. Um, recently, there was a sociological study where um, a sociologist uh, filled a room with African teenagers and put a bowl of, or a basket of fruit on the other side of the room. And then lined them all up on the, uh, on the opposite side from the fruit and said, I'm going to count to three and say, go. And the first person who gets to the basket of fruit gets to eat it all. Three, two, one, go. The moment he said go, they all immediately grabbed hands. And together as one, they walked to the basket of fruit. They picked it up, they sat in a circle, and they shared it with one another. The sociologist got uh, in touch with the oldest, uh, the oldest African teen and said, why did you do that? He said, because if one of us is happy and the rest of us is sad, it just simply doesn't work for us. Ubuntu. I am because we are. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said it this way. He said, my humanity is inextricably bound up in yours. It's this concept that my life, love, and leadership, it ripples positively and negatively into everyone's life around the world. I cannot exist in isolation. Everything that I do impacts you and everything you do impacts me. What if we were to live with that kind of understanding? See, this Ubuntu concept, this is what Jesus is actually talking about when he's talking about making a new family. Here's what happens when we begin to build uncommon friendships and we begin to reach across the aisles and and, and the hands of one another. The Spirit of God begins to roam untamed in those relationships. And yeah, I'm learning a lot more about what it means to follow Jesus. But I tell you what, I wish I had time to tell all of the stories of people who were Jesus-intrigued but wanted nothing to do with him, they thought, suddenly discovering a legitimate Jesus who was worth their lives. You see, the Spirit of God roams untamed in relationships. And until we become people who learn how to develop these kinds of uncommon relationships, I wonder how it is that we're even stymieing the movement of the Spirit into people's 
lives. And so I look into this room and I see the life-changing impact of Ubuntu. I see people of faith oriented around Jesus, poised to reach across aisles and divides and streets for the hands of people who are on the other sides. I see a community of people who is poised to confess our blindness and our fear who is poised to rebel against our priorities of homogeneity, safety, and convenience. I see a group of people who has been invited into a new family, and our role is to constantly be seeing people and inviting them into the family with us. That's what this table is about. The table is a radically inclusive moment in the life of the community where we remember whose we are, who we are, and what's ours to do. And friends, what's ours to do is to live, love, and lead in a way out there that is so cross-shaped and so reaching out that people become compelled by this Jesus and find themselves a part of the Ubuntu, a part of the family. That's the work ahead of us, friends. Uh, so let me pray and bless you, and then, um, and then you can come to the table as... Uh, as this last, uh, last couple of songs are sung. Spirit, as you've roamed, uh, as you roamed untamed in the telling of that story in that one moment, I, I'm convinced that it was so compelling to the dominant culture thought leader. I'm convinced that it was compelling to those who listened in that day. And I know for me, um, I, I'm convinced that it's compelling for me and for us today. And so Jesus Um, would you give us the courage to take another step from apathy to compassion for the sake of bend, for the sake of bend and beyond? God, ignite this community to embody Ubuntu um, in a way that mends the divides here in our own city. Uh, Hear our prayer, in Jesus' name.